This is the Hasidic Story Project with Barack Holman, podcasting from Jerusalem, Israel. This podcast is sponsored by listeners just like you. To become a supporter of this podcast, please go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. Shalom Aleichem, my sweetest friends. This week I have two stories for you, but before I start the stories, I want to dedicate this episode to the success of our soldiers on the battlefield in achieving their mission of defeating Hamas, protecting us here in the Holy Land, the returning of all the hostages, healthy and whole, the refuah of everybody who's been injured, who is sick, and the comforting of the families that lost their loved ones. There was a wealthy Jew who had a few sons, but only one daughter, and she was reaching the age where it was time to get married. And there were many offers, because she happened to be a very beautiful and kind and intelligent person. But this wealthy Jew wanted a real Torah scholar for his son-in-law. He wanted somebody that truly could learn and could go beyond the simple meaning of the text and truly understand what was the intention in the Torah that he was learning. And so he looked around to find this special young man. And after many months, he was successful. He brought him back home. The young Torah scholar met the wealthy Jew's daughter. And they agreed to get married. Of course, the wealthy Jew agreed to support his son-in-law in sitting and learning for many years. And the two of them settled down near the wealthy Jew, and they were very happy. The young man would go every morning to the yeshiva, to the Beit Midrash, and he grew in his Torah learning every day. And he was truly a genius. He knew sources that most people didn't. And he was able to extrapolate from one idea another idea. And everyone acknowledged that he really was very brilliant. And of course, the wealthy Jew was happy because this was what he wanted for his daughter and for himself. And eventually they had a child. (laughs) And another one. (laughs) And the wealthy Jew was very happy to support his daughter and his grandchildren and his son-in-law. And several years passed. And then the wealthy father-in-law began to notice some small changes in the way that his son-in-law behaved, in the way that he was keeping Torah and mitzvot. He noticed that he wasn't really washing his hands before eating bread. He noticed that one of the strings on his son-in-law's tzitziot was ripped and would make the tzitziot pasul, would make them forbidden to be worn. But he noticed that his son-in-law continued wearing them. And at first he said to himself, well, you know, maybe I'm just being oversensitive. After all, my son-in-law is a genius, and he knows much more Torah and Halacha than I do. So who am I to question him? But as the months passed, the wealthy father-in-law noticed his son-in-law wasn't just not keeping Halacha properly. He was also taking off time from his learning and hanging out in the tavern with Goyim. And this went on every day. And it got to the point where the father-in-law could no longer hold back. There was clearly something going on with his son-in-law, and he needed to find out what it was. So one day, he asked his son-in-law to sit down, and he says to him, Please, my son, tell me, what's caused this extreme behavior in you? Are you unhappy? Is there something or someone that's bothering you? What can I do to help you, my son? And the son-in-law, really with a great deal of gratitude towards his father-in-law, he said, I have to tell you, sir, I'm very happy. Your daughter is truly a special person with a big heart, a wonderful mother, and a wonderful wife. And I couldn't ask for more. 
And you've been supporting us all these years so that I could sit and learn. And I'm incredibly grateful to you. So the father-in-law says, well, I kind of noticed that you weren't learning as much as you used to. And I also noticed you weren't washing your hands before saying hamotzi, before eating bread. And that one of the strings on your tzitziot was ripped. What's going on? And the son-in-law said, you know, in the first few years of being married, everything was perfect. But then I started having some doubts about Hashem's ability to do certain things that our sages of blessed memory said had happened. I even noticed that some of the great commentators said that some of the things that were written were exaggerations and they shouldn't be taken literally. So I got to the point where I wasn't sure what was real and what was an exaggeration, what was a metaphor and what should I take literally. And so I started going around and asking some of the big rabbis, the great scholars in the yeshiva, and whenever I asked, the answer I got was either that those are dangerous questions that one is not allowed to ask, or if they gave me an answer, it was such a weak answer that they themselves admitted it wasn't really an answer. I had my doubts, and my doubts began to pile up. Does Hashem really care, for example, if I wash my hands before I make hamotzi? And does it have to go all the way up to your wrist? Or if it's a little bit less, it doesn't count? And I couldn't figure out where the line was and if Hashem really cared. And so I decided I'm not going to wash before eating bread. And then I noticed one of my tzitzit was torn. And I know that you can wear a tzitzit that's torn, but to what point? And I looked at it and I tried to measure it. And I'm thinking, so you mean to tell me if I remove one millimeter from this string, it won't be kosher? But if I have just enough, then it is? So I figured, you know, Hashem doesn't care about these things. And I wore tzitziot that maybe weren't kosher. And my doubts go much deeper than this. And so I got to the point where I figured, does Hashem really care if I sit and learn Torah? I'll go hang out with the guys in the bar. It's a lot more fun than the yeshiva, let me tell you. The son-in-law looked up at his father-in-law, and he could see the pain on his face. The father-in-law was thinking, this was the son-in-law that I made such an effort to find. I turned down so many offers in order for my daughter to be married to this guy. When I met him, he was so strict about every mitzvah. I don't understand it. And at one point he thought maybe he just has to give up. He just has to accept that his son-in-law has a screw loose in his head. And he's the one who picked him, so he can't blame anyone else. But then he said to himself, I have to find a way to fix this. And he turns to his son-in-law and he says, My dear son-in-law, you know a great deal more Torah than I do. And if the great Torah scholars of this town were not capable of answering your questions, I for sure don't have the ability to answer your questions. However, I'm asking you one favor, please. I want you to come with me to a great sage that I know personally, and I want you to ask him all of your questions and see if he can answer them. And the son-in-law, even though he had pretty much given up on being a religious Jew at this point, he wanted to be nice to his father-in-law, and he figured, I've asked everybody these questions and nobody can answer them, so whoever this so-called great sage is that my father-in-law thinks he knows, he won't be able to answer them either and then I can go back to the tavern and hang out with my buddies. So the two of them get in the wagon, and they start riding. And after many hours, they arrived in the town of Mejibuz, where of course the great Rebbe, the Heide Gebal Shem Tov, lived and died and is buried. And when they arrived, it was a hot summer day, and there wasn't a single cloud in the sky anywhere to be seen. 
They arrive at the Baal Shem Tov's room, and the father-in-law pours out his heart to the Baal Shem Tov. And he says, please, Rebbe, you have to help my son-in-law. I'm not capable of answering his questions. I don't have explanations. It's true that I'm a wealthy Jew, but I'm really a simple Jew. I don't know so much Torah. And my son-in-law here, he's a genius. He knows so much more than me. Maybe he can ask you questions and you'll help him. And the Baal Shem Tov says to the father-in-law and the son-in-law, would they mind coming for a journey with him? A little ride in the Baal Shem Tov's wagon. And they said, sure. So they climb into the Baal Shem Tov's wagon. The father-in-law is sitting on the right. The son-in-law is sitting on the left. And the Baal Shem Tov is the driver with just one horse on the wagon. And they leave Mejibuz and go out into a big open field outside of the town. And the Baal Shem Tov turns to the son-in-law and he says, How many questions do you have, my son? And the son-in-law says, Rabbi, I have so many questions that you probably couldn't answer them all. The Baal Shem Tov says, Well, I have a question for you, my friend. The son-in-law is excited, okay? Somebody's now questioning him. The Baal Shem Tov says, Tell me, look around. Do you think it could rain right now? And the son-in-law looks at the clear blue sky. And he says, no, it's impossible. There isn't a single cloud in the sky. And the Baal Shem Tov says back, and I say it can rain. The son-in-law, he looks up at the sky again. He looks in all directions to make sure that he didn't make a mistake. There was not a single cloud in the sky. So he says to the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi, please don't play games with me. It's a physical impossibility for it to rain when it's a hot summer day and we're in this enormous field. And everywhere I look, there isn't a single cloud. There's no way for it to rain. No way in the world. And then the Baal Shem Tov smiled and he said, And I say that it can rain and it can rain even in a few seconds from now. And then all of a sudden, a huge deluge of rain started pouring down. And the whole time the Baal Shem Tov is staring at the son-in-law. And the son-in-law is looking left and right. He's looking up and down. He's looking all over. He doesn't understand. How could it start raining? From where? But then the Baal Shem Tov looked up. And the son-in-law and the father-in-law also looked up. And they realized not only was it pouring rain from a cloudless sky, but the Baal Shem Tov's wagon was completely dry. It was raining all around them but not on them. And when they looked up, there was a clear tunnel all the way up to the beautiful blue sky. There wasn't any rain above them. And the Baal Shem Tov looks at the son-in-law and he says, so tell me, do you still think that it can't rain? And the son-in-law looks at the Baal Shem Tov and says, Rebbe, I'm wrong. You're right, I'm wrong. It's raining and it's not raining on us. I don't know how you did this, Rebbe. It's a physical impossibility, but clearly it's raining. And the Baal Shem Tov looks at the son-in-law and he said, and now it will stop raining. And the rain all of a sudden stopped. He starts driving the horse and wagon back to Mejibuz without saying a word. And the father-in-law understood the brilliance of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov knew that if he tried to just answer the questions of the son-in-law, the son-in-law might not be convinced. And so the Baal Shem Tov had no choice but to show the son-in-law that the stories of our sages of blessed memory are beyond human comprehension. And even though we can't understand them, it doesn't mean that they never happened or they weren't real. And now the son-in-law understood this. And once this question was answered, he realized that all of the doubts that he had about the sages, the Torah, and Hashem 
were all based on his logic and understanding of the world and not his faith and trust in Hashem, which is beyond this world. And he realized there was no basis for his questions to start with. And when they reached Mezhibuz, the son-in-law begged the Baal Shem Tov to please guide him to come back to the ways of Hashem. And of course, the Baal Shem Tov obliged and eventually, this son-in-law became one of the big Hasidim of the Heliga Baal Shem Tov. And he and his wife and his children, they moved to Mezhibuz to be closer to the Rebbe. Many years later, the Baal Shem Tov passed away in 1760. And he was buried in Mezhibuz in a grave that you can still visit until today, my sweetest friends. And I had the schut, the merit, to visit the Heliga Baal Shem Tov and to have a very special experience by his grave. And after the first year of the Baal Shem Tov's passing, many of the Hasidim gathered together in the Baal Shem Tov's house, and each of them was asked to tell a miraculous story that had happened to them with their Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov. And that night, the Baal Shem Tov came to his Hasid, the son-in-law, in a dream, and he said to him, You should know, my son, my greatness was not in my ability to do miracles. It was my awe of Hashem in even the smallest detail of doing a mitzvah, even washing my hands before eating bread, and even making sure that all of my tzitziot were kosher. And so we learn from this story, my sweetest friends, that as great a scholar as somebody might be, they always have to trust in Hashem and know that there will be things that they can't understand in this world and that only Hashem can understand. And even though we don't have the Baal Shem Tov to do miracles for us, like he did in the time of the son-in-law, we do have stories like this to continue to inspire us. I have one more short story for you. This took place in 1967. During the Six-Day War, everybody knows that Marat HaMachpelah, which is the cave of the patriarchs in the matriarchs in Hebron, was occupied by the Muslims for approximately 700 years. And they did not allow the Jews to come in and pray next to the graves of our forefathers, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah. The only thing the Jews were allowed to do was go up to the seventh step outside on the eastern stairway leading up to the tomb markers and no further. And so when the IDF liberated Hebron and Yerushalayim and other important sites during the Six-Day War, the chief rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Nisim, sent Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu, who was then only 38 years old, to go to the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, Kever Rachel in Beit Lechem, the tomb of Rachel, our mother, and the Kotel, of course, the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And when they arrived at the cave in Hebron, there was a large group of soldiers that came in with Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu. 
And it was the first time anyone had been inside since winning the battle for Hebron. And there were many high-ranking commanders and many soldiers there. Amongst them, Yitzchak Rabin, Chaim Barlev, and Uzi Narkis, and a number of prominent rabbis in the land of Israel as well. And some of the soldiers were injured, some were hungry, some were exhausted after days of fighting. And there were the rugs in the cave that the Muslims had used to pray on. And the soldiers laid down and simply fell asleep out of exhaustion. And suddenly, the sheikh that was in charge of the cave, a man named Jibri, came out and started yelling at the soldiers and the commanders, Get out of this cave! You have no respect for this holy place! We Muslims, we wash our hands five times before we come in here. We take off our shoes and we show respect and honor to this place. Look at your soldiers, they're eating here. They're sleeping here. They're walking on their rugs with their dirty boots. You have no respect for this place. That's why we wouldn't let the Jews in here in the first place. Get out! You have no right to be here. And the generals, they didn't know how to answer him. And so they were just quiet. But there was one person who knew how to answer. That was Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu, who spoke fluent Arabic, just like the senior commanders did. And he responded to the sheikh in Arabic. He said, listen to me, sheikh. You know that if a servant comes before the king in dirty clothes and serves him food on a dirty tray while standing in front of all the ministers and the other servants, then for sure the king would put that person to death. But if the king's son was absent from his mother and his father's home for so many years, and the father and mother were constantly crying for their children, begging that their children return, and their son finally comes home after many years, he said, how do you think the king would receive his children? What if they just wandered in without having an appointment? What if they showed up with dirty clothes and interrupted the king with all of his ministers, saying, Father, I've come home. What if he approached the queen, his mother? He said, Mother, I'm here. Rabbi Mordechai told the sheikh, I guarantee you, the father and the mother, the king and the queen, would hug their son, no matter how dirty his clothes were. And no matter how exhausted he was, they would just be thanking Hashem that their son came home. And Rabbi Eliyahu looks the sheikh in the eyes and he said, Abraham is our father and Sarah is our mother. And we behave in this cave as if it's our own home. You, however, are the sons of Fatima, the children of the maidservant Hagar. And you behave like a servant is supposed to behave. But we behave like the king and queen's children, because you are a servant, but we are their true descendants. And the sheikh was embarrassed. He didn't know how to answer the rabbi. And he was called the son of Fatima, the son of a maidservant. He was insulted. He turned around and went back to his room and slammed the doors. And one of the generals immediately turned to Rabbi Eliyahu. And he said to him, what are you doing? We want to live here in peace and coexistence with the Arabs. Why did you disrespect him like that? You might have ruined our chances of living in peace with them. And Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu said to the general, you have to tell them the truth. That's the only thing that they'll understand. And the general said, no, I don't care about the truth. I only care about peace. I just want to live with the Arabs in peace. You'll have to swallow your truth, Rabbi. And the two of them were going back and forth for a few minutes. Until suddenly, the sheikh's door opened again, and he exited his room with his head down. He came over to Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu with his head down, 
And he said, Oh, great rabbi, my master, please forgive me. You are right, rabbi. We are the servants, and you are the children. And Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu didn't even turn to him or respond to him. He simply looked at the generals, and he said, I grew up amongst the Arabs in the old city of Jerusalem. That's how I know Arabic. And what I learned growing up amongst the Arabs in Jerusalem is that if we tell them the truth, they will understand it. And if we don't, we're causing a great deal of problems for ourselves. And so, my sweetest friends, as somebody grew up in America, in the West, with liberal values, I was just like the generals. I wouldn't have known what Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu knew. But of course, now we know he's right. And everyone, from the prime minister to the chief of staff to the lowest level soldier, all understands that we have to tell the truth. And if anyone asks you, who does the land of Israel belong to? You tell them it belongs to the Jews. And if they say, but weren't there people before you? So you can look, my sweetest friends, it's really incredible. The first Rashi, the first commentary of Rashi in the book of Bereshit, the first book in the Torah. Rashi says, and he wrote this around the year 1100. He said, when the nations of the world come and they say, Listimatem, you're a bunch of thieves. You stole the land of Israel from the seven nations of the Canaanites. Rashi tells us from 900 years ago, you tell the nations of the world, the entire earth belongs to God. Blessed be he. He created it and he gave it to whoever he decided should be living in the Holy Land. He took it away from them and he gave it to us. And you understand, my sweetest friends, that Rashi was living in France. There was no Zionism. There was no state of Israel. The Jews had been exiled in the year 135, a thousand years before. And here Rashi is telling us, one day we will come back to the land of Israel. And when anyone says, you took the land from the people that were before you, you tell them, God gives and God takes. And God took it from them and gave it to us. And when we speak the truth, the nations of the world will respect us.
Thank you so much for listening. As always, my sweetest friends, thank you to all the listeners and all the supporters and all the people that write to me and send in a contribution. And please, my friends, keep on sharing because I see more and more people are listening to the podcast and keep on listening. And if you're listening on YouTube, thank you for all the comments. And until next week, my sweetest friends, I hope we'll hear good news. And in the meantime, have a good Shabbos and sei gesund. And another one.